Welcome to the Rider Dojo with your host, Steve Diamond. Yellow. And Larry Kuya. I mean. Today's episode, Historical Fantasy. Everybody, welcome back to the Rider Dojo. Glad to have you back with Larry and I here. Now, today we've got a special treat with us. Dave Butler's back with us, I'm our back. good friend Dave. He's like a, you know, like herpes. We just can't get rid of him. Like a bad fungus. No, that was the only reason I knew how to say hello in Ojibwe is because of Dave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If, if you haven't read Dave Butler before, um, one, you're missing out. And two, one of the big things that, that I know I personally love and I know Larry loves a lot about, Dave, uh, about Dave's writing is he tells really, really wonderful historical fantasy um, stories. Yeah, absolutely. And when we say historical fantasy, what we mean there is Dave likes to take real life history uh, and and mix it in with fantasy elements. So mm-hmm. this is kind of like the historical version of urban fantasy where right. we're taking the real world yeah. and writing fantasy elements. So, yeah. But Dave's kind of a history nut. Oh, yeah. And I'm a big fan of this. This is kind of a subgenre, and I'm a big fan of this stuff because I, I, this is what I did with Hard Magic mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Um and so since we had Dave on tonight, we wanted to hear his uh, uh, advice for writing historical fantasy, now yeah. to go about it. All right, Dave, you're here. Yeah. We've got you held captive again. Oh, no. No, so, the chains are comfortable. I like I know. the fur you get. I mean, you know, it's I don't pink. know where you get something like that. This is really great. Oh, uh, yeah. It's from we'll my send, private. It's we'll from send my, you the link to the Amazon. Yeah, pictures. it's from my private collection for the people in my basement. So, Thanks. Dave. Why historical fantasy? Why should someone want to write this? So, so it's interesting. This goes back to, at least borders on some of the things we said when we talked about world telling as opposed to world building. Okay. And um, the, uh, you know, when you're writing a book, there are, uh, I, I guess, I, I guess two, two, two different answers. One, this is, I think, the smaller case. Uh, when you're writing a book, you are trying to tell some kind of truth. Now, you shouldn't hopefully usually start from the position of, I am going to tell you my theme. But as you're creating your story, there's some kind of human truth in there. It may happen that, that the human truth you want to tell is about a particular period. Okay? That may, that may be true. But I think the, the bigger case is this. When you write about... Um, a story in a in a real earth adjacent space a, a fantasy earth or or real earth with just a few fantasy elements mm-hmm. right um you tap into everything that your reader already knows is in there and and so um th- this is why i think uh if you were to plot out you know when are historical fantasies fantasies written in the english language when are they mostly set you i don't think they would be a smooth uh line saying mm-hmm. oh yeah they're set you know equally in all time periods because we don't care about or know about all time periods equally and so i think you would get a big uh bump around Victorian England and you get a big bump around Elizabethan England and maybe the Civil War and the World US. War II for sure. World War II, right? Like there are things that loom large in our consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so A, those the fact that they loom large may push the writer to sort of wanting to engage with them. But also B, you may deliberately say, hey, if I set this story in, you know, 
uh, among actors on the south bank of the River, River Thames in the year 1602, and they're performing at the Globe, but they're just understudies or whatever. There is a whole bunch of Shakespeare, Queen Elizabeth stuff that you can just by little references tap into. Mm-hmm. It's the immediate immediate accessibility I found. It's like so uh right in I, I say nineteen thirties uh Great Depression Dust Bowl superheroes. Yep. Automatically people people start thinking of like every gangster movie they've ever seen and Dillinger and uh, Tommy it, it, guns and Tommy guys hanging guns. on the outside of the car on the running board. Dudes with cool hats. Dudes with all men wearing hats, right? Yeah, guys men, with ordinary with jobs going hats. wearing suits to work. Yeah, and so it, it brings up those images. And so, like when you talk about uh, Victorian, I think uh, that's one of those things that we've seen whole big genres because accessibility immediately paints a picture in the mind of the reader. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's some of the reason to do it. All right. Now, admittedly, I'm, uh, I haven't, I haven't written a lot of this. You know, I, I think Servants of War is kind of sort of adjacent to this, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, and again, to, to one of your earlier points, Larry, you, you can say very specific things and it conjures all sorts of feelings. So Servants of War, which, you know, I, I know, I know Dave's. Oh right. yeah, you, we did an interview yeah, for you, the Bane Free Radio. Yep, you interviewed uh-huh. us for, for that. And so when, when Larry and I talk about it and we say, this is trench warfare fantasy. Right. All of a sudden people go, oh boy, okay. Yeah, because they immediately form a mental picture of trench warfare, World War One, And it's they, they know it's going to be ugly. And poison they gas. They know it's going to be, they mm-hmm. know poison gas is going to be in rats there. Rats eating people. Rats, there weren't enough rats eating people. Yeah, that was one of our big criticism. We, we didn't have enough yeah. rats. Not, not enough, enough rats eating people. Yeah, we had rats, but not sufficient rats. Apparently. Yeah, we'll have to work on that. Yeah, we're going to bump that up for the sequel. Yeah. Okay, good, good enough. Yeah, so... um. I think that's right. But also things like Prague, right? When you insert Prague, you are playing on, even in its fantasy version of mm-hmm. pra- Praja, yeah. right? Yep, that's yeah. right. Well, because we have the golem of Prague. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So the golem, that whole, you know, Rudolf II and his kind of ecumenical, magical, free-thinking, mm-hmm. early modern Prague with alchemists and rabbis and everybody, right? That's like a real history that people are, you know, the, the name Prague just kind of echoes. Yeah. With all yeah. So stuff. I think we got kind of two separate things here. Uh, we have fantasy versions of real historical mm-hmm. stuff or, yep. or fantasy versions of things inspired by history. Mm-hmm. And then we have stuff where it's uh, fantasy versions of history set in that historical mm-hmm. thing. So I guess there's two different ways to look at this. Yep. Or it may even be a spectrum where it starts with sort of a hey, this is the real world with some very small, discrete fantasy elements, and you kind of go along the spectrum, it becomes fantasy elements become larger and more overt, and at some point you're looking at like a cartoon or kind of a, a funhouse mirror version of the world. The mummy. Yeah, the mummy, yeah. right. Yeah. The Brendan Fraser, the good, the good one. Yeah. The good, the good mummy. Yeah, exactly. It, start, it starts out very 1932 or whatever, 1928, right. Egypt, you know, yeah, that whole angle, and then as it goes on, Yep. It diverges dramatically from yep. reality. Yep. So, it turns into a superhero show, which is pretty baller. Yep. Okay, so my question for the both of you then, because you, the both of you have far more experience in this than I do, right? And that's, I, 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 guess, I guess it comes down to when, when you're looking at historical things, how do you know when, uh, how do you know how much to twist it? How do you know how, do you know how much you, you're looking at that you know, whether it's, uh, I don't know, like the, the murder of Franz Ferdinand or whatever. 
you know, you're looking at that and you're like, okay, how much do I twist this to turn it into, uh, into a historical fantasy thing versus just a, like an alternate, like just, just a, a very straight alternate history. Like, like where, is there a dial here? Like, like I'm curious, I'm curious to pick your guys' brain on this. I think this is a weird enough little subgenre that I don't know if there's a, a right answer to that. Cause I I was thinking about that. Like, uh, so you got straight up alternate history Mm -hmm. where like one thing in history changed and Mm -hmm. things went entirely different. Yeah, you got stuff like one of the most famous alternate history novels of all time is Guns of the South, mm-hmm. Harry Turtledove. And that, he full on has a science fiction element of time travel. Right. Where it was like these uh, racial supremacist um, South Africans take AK-47s back to the Confederacy. But they use time travel to do it. And so that's basically sci- – that's actually sci-fi, not alternate right. history. So I think – I think um, I don't know if there's a right answer to that. I think it's just kind of be uh, – change the stuff you think you need to to make it awesome and make it mm-hmm. cool what do you think dave yeah i think it depends on the story i think i'm saying the same thing as larry but maybe a little bit differently and i'm going to talk now about my own books uh, and that's not and that too bad no um, we encourage that that's here. that's the point okay good but i will i'll make we reference are, to we're other unabashed capitalists on okay the show. awesome so at one end i think you have stories where um for most of the characters in the story it simply is the historical earth okay so uh, uh i'll give you an example well i'll give you two examples one uh one the first one not mine so tim powers i first encountered tim powers as a kid brilliant man. uh yeah the drawing of the dark i read this book and it was I, it was insane so it's about this irish mercenary named brian duffy and he's at the siege of constantinople in what is it 1683 is that right i think that's right and um so Suleiman the Great's forces are outside and they're besieging Constantinople and he is approached by this uh, weird old guy who wants him to protect a vat of beer. And as he gets into it, it turns out that the reason is that Western civilization is based upon um, uh, a mythical hero that gets, that gets reincarnated every 800 years as this beer comes to maturity and is drawn and the beer is actually resting the vat where the beer is aging fermenting is sitting on the the guy's original grave okay so like he's in there in the beer right and and it's and the dark it's the dark the Herzen vest the heart of the west beer is coming it's doing being drawn now and Suleiman represents the forces of evil who have come to stop the dark beer from being drawn and Brian Duffy is not only it turns out the reincarnation of that original culture hero but one of the guys one of the previous reincarnations was king arthur so he's like king arthur and this nameless stone age beer hero guy and it's insane and awesome i'm trying to figure out the trying to figure out the, the query letter for this one and the old man is merlin by the way so and and and, and so but for everybody else it's just the siege of it's just the siege of vienna that's what it is and and that's crazy enough in itself but like the all the fantasy element is is hidden. Um, so, and and a lot of Tim's books are like that. He's a great example. Another really great one to read. I love The Drawing of the Dark. It's an early one. Uh, the Stress of Her Regard is a kind of a fantasy horror story about Byron and Shelley and Keats, um, who are poets who are basically in this kind of sadomasochistic but also muse inspirational relationship with a race of vampires who live on the highest peaks of mountains and it's about how byron kind of becomes aware of them and tries to fight back um it is fabulous 
Uh, and again, for most characters in the world, it's just the world. Um, but, you know, for the few who are in the know, the, the Italian Masonic Carbonari are really a conspiracy to defeat these Lamiae who are up in the tops of the Swiss mountains drinking the blood of Pope, bloods of poets. You know, Steve is saying, like, how, how does Tim Powers do query letters? Yeah. The letter says, I'm Tim Powers. I think that's probably right. <laughs> I'm Tim Powers and I envision. Here is a book. And, and, and people go, Tim, here is a check full of money. Yeah. Him and Dan Simmons, because yep. we, we've actually gone through pitches before on here, and we've gone through, like, Dan Simmons novels, and, like, how do you... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, it, it, it's funny, it's, uh, by, by mentioning Keats and Shelley, yep. uh, one of the things I think is really fun about historical fantasy is taking real-life people. Yeah. Taking real-life people oh, and yeah, yeah, doing yeah. interesting, fun yeah, things with yeah, them, because yeah, yeah, there's yeah. some really great characters from history. I, I used John Moses Browning, and I made him a literal gun wizard. Yeah. And most people don't even know who that is, but if you're a gun nut, that's like, you know, we pay right. Ogden, Utah is our Mecca. We pray towards it three times a day. Uh, and so <laughs> being able to use him as a, as a character in a fantasy novel was a hoot. That, I was, a, I was, I was, a, I, I had so much fun writing that. That's awesome. Ste steampunk does that a lot. My, my steampunk novel, City of the Saints, includes John Moses Browning, but he's a five-year-old boy who is a page aboard the amphibious steam truck, the Liahona, running passengers from Fort Bridger down into Salt Lake. See, this stuff is amazing. Yeah. I love that. I, I That's just too, it's just too cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and then here's the thing, like, we, we've joked about, like, uh, historical characters. I've used Rasputin now in a couple different uh -huh. book series. Yeah. You know, as, as for Servants of War, we always joked about not Rasputin. Totally right. not Rasputin. But how could you not use that guy as a fictional character? Because he was just definitely bizarre. I mean, he was bizarre. It was insane. Yeah. And so I, I love being able to draw upon this stuff. It's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And uh, there's, I think that's one of the coolest things about historical fantasy is, a lot of it is like there's so many ideas out there to draw from that when you use them, readers are like, oh, wow, I recognize that. That's cool. I yeah. know I know what this is. And even if they're historically ignorant, hopefully you wrote a cool enough story. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Or, or there's somewhere I've done where people – I'll have a character fleshed out in the books and people will assume it's a real person. Like a, I've actually had people Google search names I've used in books. To see. Was this a real person or not? Yeah. Yeah. So that's been, And I've actually had somewhere been contacted by their um, – by their descendants. All right. That's I've funny. actually had that a couple times where I used like a more obscure character. And someone reached out and said. Yeah, like great-grandson. Yeah. And it's like, dude, that was my great-granddad. That's awesome. Yeah. And it, so, I don't know. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy that stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, let me give you one quick example of kind of that end of it from my writing. So, The Cunning Man is set in, uh, it's also a, a Dust Bowl fantasy. It's set in 1930s. Uh, it's set in Utah. It's about a sugar beet farmer from Lehigh, Utah. And for every, almost everybody in all the books, it is just our world. The Roosevelt administration is over there blowing up the government and, and all the stuff that you know happened, happened. And, and that's thematically important for the story because the main character, Hiram Woolley, is a sugar beet farmer, but he's also a wizard. And his magic is what he learned from, it's his traditional magical lore he learned from his grandma. And it is secret. And it's very private. And in fact, he will get in trouble uh, with his neighbors, with the church, with the police, if they know he's doing this stuff. And so uh, the fact that the world is the normal world, except for a very for a very few characters for whom they are performing acts of magic, 
um, is a deliberate choice. It's a deliberate choice that that matters to who the character is and the kind of risks he faces. I in the again, I'm I'm more of a horror author, and, and most people know this. One of the one of the things that that I really like uh, within literature within the horror community is the idea of um and it's and it's not i don't know that i would consider it not it's not quite historical fantasy in a sense but there's the idea that the further back you go the line between uh supernatural and superstition is is really interesting and you can play with that that line really really hard you know i think of things like um uh, I guess it's time for my obligatory Robert McCammon mention, right? Uh, every episode. Every, I, well, we try. <laughs> um, Steve's a huge Robert McCammon fan. Um, speaks the Nightbird, okay? I believe it's set um, 1699, colonial, you know, East Coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, it's about a magistrate who goes um, to a small town to judge a woman who's been accused of being a witch, right? And, and you know, U.S. history is... I mean, between that, Salem, all that stuff, it's just rife, rife with, with, with a playing ground that you can go in there and talk about, you know, the witches and were they real, were they not? You don't know. That, I mean, that particular setting has been used hundreds and hundreds of times. So many times. And it doesn't, I mean, for me anyway, I'm sure for a lot of people it does, but for me, it doesn't really get old because there's so many little things you can touch and you can tweak to, to radically alter the story. And, and I think that, that for me, that's the appeal from a reader standpoint, that's the appeal of reading the stuff that, that, you know, like, like Dave, that you put out or Larry that you put out when, um, you know, talking about say, say grim noir, that's the appeal of reading that stuff for me. It's okay. What's the little thing they're going to twist? Is it actually going to be magic? Is it going to be something different? Like I want to see, I, I love seeing uh, other people play in that arena. I think it's fascinating. So we're going to take a quick break and when we come back. Uh, I, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about this topic. And from a nuts and bolts standpoint, I think, I think we're going to talk a little bit about the potential dangers and pitfalls of writing in, in historical fantasy. So we'll be right back. Sarah is raised as the daughter of Iron Andy Calhoun, an Appalachian military hero and one of the electors who gets to choose the emperor of the new world. She has a natural talent for hexing and one bad eye, and all she wants is to be left alone, especially by outsiders. Sarah's world gets turned on its head at the Nashville Tobacco Fair when a Yankee wizard priest tries to kidnap her. Sarah fights back with the aid of a mysterious monk named Tholonese, who was one of the not-quite-human firstborn, the mound builders of the Ohio. Tholonese reveals to Sarah that she's really the daughter of the murdered king of Cahokia and the former empress, Mad Hannah Penn. Now, on a desperate quest to claim this heritage, she is hunted by the Emperor's bodyguard of elite dragoons, as well as by darker things, shape-shifting mockers and undead Lazars, and behind them, the necromancer, Oliver Cromwell. If Sarah cannot reclaim her heritage, it may mean the end to her, to her family, and to the world where she is just beginning to find her place. Witchy Eye by DJ Butler is available on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Pick up your copy today. And welcome back, everybody. Glad to have you back with us here. Once again, this is Writer Dojo, and today we do have Dave Butler with us, and we're talking about historical fantasy. Now, in the first part, we talked about 
why we all love it so much. Um, but it isn't for everybody. And like anything, I, I think that there can be potential pitfalls and dangers. Now, for the two of you who, who have written this more, I, I guess I'll just serve in, in this context as more of like asking questions and stuff. So what are some of the what are some of the dangers that some of our prospective authors out there need to watch out for when they go when they decide, hey, dude, I want to write I want to write historical fantasy. What are what are some of the again, what are, what are the dangers of doing this? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, some of the fairly kind of obvious pits you can fall into are, um, making your character sound, uh, believably of the period mm -hmm. without making it difficult to read. Okay. So, uh, characters who just use today's slang, um, and unless that's really stylized and on purpose, it's going to sound uh, wrong, and people won't believe it. That's a big one, and uh, you also see too because people have misunderstandings of history, where they tend to look at like a like movies, modern movies, about one particular part of history, and they extrapolate from there that everybody talks like that. So, like I'm writing 1930s stuff, mm. and what do most people's knowledge of how people sound in the 1930s comes from movies? Yeah primarily gangster movies gonna say maybe. and if you actually read the way people conversed and talked and conversations actual uh recordings of people and interviews and that kind of thing they actually spoke a lot like us they had different slang but they people were fairly well spoken and so that'd be like doing a hundred year or you know 70 years from now doing uh geez world 90 years from now uh doing a thing about today and basing all of our language upon gangster rap videos right you know, most Americans don't talk like we're off a gangster rap video. That would be completely inauthentic. But people assume that everybody talked in the 1930s like Cagney, you dirty mm -hmm. rat. You know? And it's just completely wrong. Um, but no, that, that brings up a good one. So I was going to say my pitfall is historical illiteracy. Okay. I see a lot of times where people will try to write something historical. And it's just dumb and wrong. Like they didn't do their homework. We talked about on the show a lot about doing your homework and like how much world building is too much world building. But if you're doing historical fantasy, you got to do enough to make sure you don't come off as a dummy to everybody who actually knows that time period. Westerns are a huge one. Where uh, if you know anything about like the actual old West and you watch some of these or, or, or read some of these accounts, just like and they just butcher it. They butcher the culture. They 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 butcher reality. I mean, Sam Elliott got in trouble a little while ago for complaining yeah. about an Oscar-winning movie mm -hmm. that was like, that's because Sam Elliott knows the West and has made like a thousand Westerns. And he's like, that was not the West. That was not real. That's not what you're showing is not how it was. And his comment was interesting, right? Because he said, he said, um, he went beyond the point of the specific issue with the movies and said, uh, all these Westerns want to show the, the lone hero triumphing. Well, the West was conquered by big families. Right. Yep. And, and like, that's a, that's a real, that's an interesting observation yeah. and not, and not what we read. Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause, and I think you're going to have this for every time period where there's the history and then there's the accessible history, which is usually based upon Americans understanding by watching movies, mm -hmm. which is not often the same. And so I think when you're writing this stuff, you got to pick the path you want to take of like, am I going to be historically super accurate or am I going to be accessible to what people understand mm -hmm. it to be? I think there's kind of a fine line there. 
And I think it can, which way you want to go depends on the story you want to tell. Yeah, I think um, kind of, kind of we can we can we can iterate on this several kind of related points. Uh, anachronisms are really easy to fall into. People don't recognize anachronisms in the, in their own language, um, and you need to think about as you're writing and and maybe you know you don't want to slow yourself too much down in the writing, but especially as you're revising. You need to get in the habit of looking at words and saying, ooh, how old is that word? Yeah. Hmm. Right? And where does it come from? So you don't say, you don't have your character in the 12th century talk about, you know, the enemy picked up lock, stock, and barrel and moved on. Right? Uh, uh, so that's easy. Uh, that's like an, an easy level. But there are, there are, you don't know what you don't know. Right? And I think that this is a very broad comment, but I think that there are far more mental gulfs between us and our ancestors than we think about from day to day. And so Larry's question is really an interesting one. How much do I really want to write to simulate that person who lived 500 years ago accurately? Um, how much do I want to write something that is sort of a partial simulation, which will communicate the, the, the idea of a whole simulation, but still be accessible or am I happy writing just complete, campy, anachronistic, you know, this is just wallpaper that they're wearing doublets and cod pieces? Right? And I think I think they're all valid because for each one of those you just described, I can think of a work that goes with one of those. Yeah. Uh, talk about like like the movie The Knight's Tale. Yeah. Does mm -hmm. I mean, and, and right. that definitely is like I mean, they're just speaking English. Right. <laughs> I mean, they're speaking modern English. Yeah. And they're just doing like it's MTV. You know what I mean? Yep. We will rock you. Yep. <laughs> it's in there, Literally. but then it's a fun flick. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a fun flick. Uh, I and you know I think I I I don't know if there's a right or wrong way. I'm not going to tell you don't do that. I think it's just going to depend on the story. And so if you're doing something like real dead serious, yeah, and, and you and you're trying to pass it off as being an accurate representation, then by golly, I think you do actually need to do that research. If you're doing something just fun and silly, if I'm if I'm writing Tom Stranger, if I and I go back in time and they have time travel all the time there. The history there is going to be the goofiest interpretation of the history humanly possible. And it's going to be slang and stupid and dumb. And there's, you know, going to be, it doesn't have to make any sense. I, I So I just think it kind of depends. But like, if you were writing, for example, like, uh, like something that's supposed to be like, I, I, I'm trying to find the right word for this subject, like the historical epic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not fantasy, but like, um. Uh, Planet of the Cave Bear, some Michener novel or something. Stephen, Stephen Pressfield's uh, Gates of Fire. Okay. You mm -hmm. know, that kind of thing. Then that, I think you have to be as accurate as possible and still remain within reach of the of the reader. Yeah. But, man, you, but you bring it up like the, the, the colloquial stuff. Like, it, when you're writing this, you don't even realize the things that we use in our language that come from time periods much later. And there's little things like like we, we we just take for granted in our writing like somebody gives a thumbs up signal. Right. That's not that old. Right. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Like you got the whole Roman gladiator thing, but that's you know, as far as in Western American culture, that's not a that's a new thing. The okay sign. Right. You know? Uh and how long that's been around. Um and so anytime you use some of this stuff, I, I would be writing like nineteen thirties and I'd be like and I'd write something and I have a character who's like, Did they do that then? You know, and there were times where I had to stop and be like, "Wow, okay, did they have shaving cream? I don't know." <laughs> it was a, I had to go read what year did shaving cream come out? You know, 
things like that. And um, which actually does lead to some interesting uh, writing challenges, you know, but uh, I think that I think that add, and I think the more you do that, the more it adds to the 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 depth of the world and how much it actually feels real. What was the hardest challenge for the both of you when you when you really decided you wanted to write um, historical fantasy? What was so, Dave, what was the biggest challenge that you faced when you're like, you're like, heck, yeah, I'm going to write I'm going to write witchy eye. Yeah, and so, I'm gonna do like, like historical America that's turned on its head a little bit. Like, what was what was the thing you're like, oh dang, this is this is rough. So uh, to sort of play on something Larry said, you know, I think, and to say something I, I connect to things I said in our earlier conversations, previous evenings. Um, I think you, if, especially if you say I'm gonna write historical fantasy, you really need to be a reader, a consumer of history. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Maybe that means uh, I mean a lot of things. It's not even necessarily books, right? There are history podcasts out there uh-huh. and lots of interesting history channels on YouTube and stuff, right? Um, so here's the thing about Witchy Eye. Okay. Um, Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings to be uh, a kind of an epic prehistory of England. Mm-hmm. It is. It is a mythology of England. Um, and, and it's not just any England, it's, it's very specifically Tolkien's own England. Um, and, and so, uh, elements of his experience, like his Catholicism show up in it. Um, but also, uh, things like the name for the writers of Rohan, the Mark is almost certainly a Anglo-Saxonized, um, version uh, of Mercia, Mercia, mm-hmm. the the Anglo-Saxon kingdom uh, in whose bounds Tolkien himself lived. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, hey, what if my ancestors had horses? Um, and if you think about how big uh, Middle Earth is, and that's just, let's take this little island and and build like a prehistory for it. So I started writing Witchy Eye. I was in my writing group. And originally, the first couple chapters, I was writing it as a young adult novel. Mm. And uh, and because uh, I was trying to write things that would sell. And I thought, okay, young adult, sell more or whatever. And, and one of the guys, Michael Dalzin in the group said, uh, Dave, I really think that of all things, this is the one where really you should just pull out the stops and write the book you actually want to write. And I thought about that, and uh, I decided to do it. And and Witchy Eye, the Witchy War. There are this six uh, six books. Ultimately, there are four books now. Eight hundred thousand words um, is a kind of uh, very Dave Butler specific, but it is an it is an epic fantasy of America. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing: Tolkien took that little island and made the vastness of the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and all the rest as a history, as a, as a myth to that little island. America is so much bigger than England. And we have lost languages and lost language families. And we have, mis- we have millions of acres of mysterious ruins, right? And we have epic uh geography right 
time-gnawed primeval mountains that are still craggy despite having been ground down tens of thousands of feet from their original height. But we have the Rockies on the other side. You know, the, the Great Lakes, the world's biggest freshwater seas, uh, the, the Ohio River system, which, by the way, fantastically, I was just reading a couple of weeks ago, they analyzed the um, contours, the uh, topography of the Ohio Valley, and realized that before the Ohio and the Mississippi River flowed south out to New Orleans, there was a completely different river that covered that same area and flowed a different direction and flowed out northwest. Hmm. Uh, so there's like a, there's a, there's a missing, there's a lost river there as there's like a massive one as there are all these missing people. What's my point? The task is impossible. The task I have set myself was impossible. It is far too big. I can't do it. And um, I'll never get my arms around it. So it becomes entirely entirely a uh, a sleight of hand act. How can I communicate enough? How can I know enough? How can I hint at enough that uh, that uh, people say, oh, well, wow, this feels real. This feels real to me and therefore I believe this and therefore the things that are happening are meaningful and I can I can get something out of the story. And like, just as, just as like a very tiny, right, uh, indication, one of the things this has meant is languages. So I, for the last 10 years that I've been writing these books, I've been reading Dutch and German and French and Spanish and Catalan. Uh, and, uh, I realized at a certain point that I, uh, that in particular, I needed to have a Native American presence, right? That any, any, any story with this kind of background that didn't have a real feeling uh, Native American component was going to be fundamentally a lie. And I went out and looked and, you know, the Algonquin language family used to be, used to dominate kind of north, east, and all the way over into Idaho and down you know, into the Ozarks, huge language family. We know of 17 different languages that were spoken. There are probably more. Uh, I said, I've got to learn some Algonquian. <laughs> and the only, and, and, and the, the, the second largest north of the Rio Grande, the Native American language with the second largest number of speakers is an Algonquian language. And that is Ojibwe. And so I went out and, and that's, that's only 40,000, right? But that means that's enough that there are materials. So I went out and have spent hours trying to kind of immerse myself in this so I can do honor to, I'm not Ojibwe, I'm zero Ojibwe as far as I know. I'd love to find out that I have a great grandmother who's Ojibwe. That'd be cool. I don't think it's gonna happen. Pretty sure. <laughs> uh, so, you know, trying to like do, do them honor by making sure that they're included in the story, that they're represented in a way that is, um, that above all is cool, you know, uh, and and accurate enough, just like in portrayal of everybody else, accurate enough that readers will go, yeah, yeah it seems legit. That, that seems legit. Um, that is an epic challenge, man. That it is. is a yeah. I can only fail. The question is like, is how much will I fail? Uh, will I get close enough that readers will say, 
Oh yeah, it was good enough. I, 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 I don't, I don't. You can't give yourself an impossible task and then say you could only fail. I, I think because if, if remember here, we're entertainers first and foremost, and in that respect, you have won. Um, and and so we're we're almost out of time, but I just want to since we've been talking about historical fantasy, I want to plug Witchy Eye, and I think that. Uh, I think that our readers, uh, if they've not read DJ Butler, Witchy Eye, that's the first book of the series. And if you want to see what Dave's talking about here, about building that epic myth, that epic, and using real history to build a fantasy, I think there'd be no better primer uh, for them to really see what we're talking about here than pick up Witchy Eye and, and take mm-hmm. a shot at that. I think it's, I think they should check that out. Thank you. So, you know, every now and then, you know, we give, we give out challenges to our specific right, you know, to, to all of our listeners. And we're like, hey, you know, go out there and, and, and try this thing in, in short form just to see if you like a taste of it. Yeah, we're usually talking like, you know, one one evening writing assignments yeah. to, to experiment with. And so awesome. I, I think what I'd like to do, twofold. One, the first the first part, and, and Larry already mentioned that, and that's go uh, buy Dave's book and read this crap because <laughs> it's awesome. Um, you know, it'll it'll give you a good feel for not just like a good story, but I, I want the readers to realize, you know, and these potential writers out there, I want them to realize like, look, there, look what you can do. Like, look at all this crazy stuff you can do out there and tell entertaining stories, doing all sorts of weird wonky things. That's awesome. You have a lot more freedom than you, than you keep telling yourself. Two, challenge. Go look at some point in history that you're interested in. And I want you to twist something in it. Just twist one little thing maybe to start out with and go, okay, put some sort of character in this, in this moment where, you know, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's during Jack the Ripper time only. Uh, Jack the Ripper is, uh, I don't know, a, a nun. A nun or something. Okay. I, what, I, what does that mean? I'm still planning on doing Roman Monster Hunter. Roman Monster Hunter. Okay. Yeah. I, I do. I have a thing for Roman Roman MHI. So, take sex to spassers. Take that point in history that you love. Every one of us has something in the past that we are, that that we're kind of like, dang, that's really cool. Like, I want to write something. It'd be cool to tell a story in there. Well, if you're thinking it'd be cool to tell a story in there, then tell the freaking story. Now, I'm not saying write you know write a whole a whole novel at this point. Again, this is a quick exercise. So go in there. Write something interesting and and see what kind of cool twist on history you can bring in uh, real quick. How quick can you make me care? And how quick can you make me realize what's different and think, oh, damn, that's cool. Yeah, do a scene. Do a, scene, a scene or two. Yeah. So, so that's your challenge out there for the day. So, uh, again, Writer Dojo, again, thank you, Dave, for oh, coming on the guys. show. We appreciate you coming on and... And, uh, and and imparting your wisdom onto our listeners, and uh, and guys, we'll see you on the next one. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea, produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song: Word Mercenaries by Craig Nibo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. 
To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. That, that seems legit.